The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus Venstaden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about China-South Africa relations in part because it is the most pivotal relationship for China on the African continent. There are more Chinese people uh, ethnically in South Africa. There's more investment. And politically and ideologically, it's one of the most interesting relationships between an African country and China. And I think to start out our conversation, I want to take you back to 1990, way back. I think I'm going to date myself here. But I was studying Chinese in Taiwan at Taiwan National Normal University. And at the time, there was a South African diplomat who came to our university, and, uh, and, and he and I had a conversation, and he kind of mapped out the world back in 1990 when there was still an apartheid government. Uh, and, well, more, it was the end of apartheid, but it was just kind of the trailing end. But he kind of talked about how South Africa saw the world. And he said, South Africa has a very, very unique place in the world, and it has a lot of, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's just basically a lot in common with Singapore, Israel, Taiwan, and and I thought that was really an odd mix of countries. Does that ring a bell when I say those those different uh, summer countries, summer nations? What those have in common, Cobus? Singapore. That I, I remember that very much from when I was a little kid. You know that that discourse um, saying essentially, I think Israel was frequently raised in in this um, in, in this regard in in the sense that it's a small small kind of technocratic or they, South Africa uh, that stage saw itself as this kind of small technocratic country surrounded by quote unquote enemies. There we go. Um, you know, and 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 that was that was the logic that 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 linked then the apartheid South African government to Taiwan as well. This idea That's of this, exactly it. this. And this Singapore kind of little well. outcast country, yes, developing itself, but surrounded by these kind of massive, you know, kind of adversaries. That's exactly it. That was the commonality. And it was so interesting. And so and so for much of the 20th century or the later half, the latter half of the 20th century, Taiwan and South Africa had a very, very strong diplomatic relationship. So uh, and, and it was for both strategic and economic reasons. And, and back then it was absolutely inconceivable that China would recognize the apartheid government. In fact, China wasn't even aligned at that time with the African National Congress. Uh, but with the liberation of Nelson Mandela, things started to change in so many different ways. And when he eventually came to lead South Africa, Beijing uh, still at that time was closely allied with the anti-apartheid Pan-African Congress. While, correct me if I'm wrong here, Kobus, but the Soviets were backing the ANC. Now, again, this is where we get complicated. The Chinese and the Soviets did not like each other at all for most of this time. So they even picked rival parties to back in part. So the politics of South Africa at the time very much mirrored a lot of the Cold War that was going on. Certainly the United States was involved in that as well. But you can see how China, Taiwan, 
and South Africa in those early days had a very, very complicated relationship. Then let's fast forward a couple years to the mid-1990s. Obviously, the world in the mid-1990s had changed dramatically. Not only was the white apartheid government out of power, but Nelson Mandela himself was president, and he took the dramatic step in 1998 to switch diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China. Now, Kobus, you were obviously alive at that time. You remember it. Kind of walk us through what was going on at that time, at that, time that prompted Nelson Mandela, in your mind, to make that switch. It was a time of a lot of political flux um, with, uh, you know, just after the fall of the Soviet Union. So there was a lot of unsurety, like, uh, like, you know, people weren't sure whether um, whether China's going to blast in, in, in its kind of communist shape. Um, so that was the one issue. There was a lot of, of international flux um, in the, the kind of geopolitical order at that stage. At the same time, South Africa was was going through a, a period where it was extremely prominent on the international stage. So South Africa's decisions about who who to align itself with carried weight, I think, that it perhaps wouldn't carry today. Um, you know, it had, there was a lot of symbolism in, in having ties with South Africa, just, you know, especially within the new South African government. Um, and of course, Nelson Mandela himself had, you know, outsized political influence and and, and personal charisma. Um, So it it all came together in this moment of of flux during the 90s, um, where the decision between Taiwan and and China took on this outsized symbolism. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the Taiwan-China divide, and we're not going to spend too much time on it, but it is something that people who are outside of the China space a lot of times fail to appreciate just how emotional, how important, how defining this relationship is. And in so many ways, Taiwan is the most important geopolitical issue for the Chinese. And I'm not going to get into right now the complexities of this. We're certainly not going to take a side on this. This is an unresolved issue that dates back to the, the Chinese Civil War in the, in, in the 1940s leading up to 1949, When the nationalists fled to Taiwan, the communists prevailed on mainland China for the 50s and 60s and right up until 1972 when Nixon went to China, Taiwan felt that it was the rightful leader of China, of all of China. Obviously, uh, that was uh, that was in dispute. And then with the recognition by Nixon of the of mainland China and the, the People's Republic of China, things started to change. So. The point that I want to make here is that this is really an unresolved issue in history, and it is one of the most complex geopolitical relationships that still confounds China today. And so as an outsider, be careful when you talk about the China-Taiwan issue. It is still a very, very hot-button issue. We won't get into that today because that's not our focus. What we do want to do is get into the China-South Africa relationship in part because today China is the most important country for South Africa when it comes to trade. It's rapidly becoming one of the most important when it comes to investment. And now, as I mentioned early on, in ideology, it's also very important. Jacob Zuma, the former president, had this idea of the look east policy. And in many ways, he looked to the Chinese Communist Party as a model for what he wanted to do with the ANC, where the president, the party, and the state would all fuse together. That's how it is here in China. And in many ways, he wanted to bring that model to South Africa. So we thought we would deep dive today into China-South Africa relations, and we brought no better person for it 
Uh, Christopher Williams is a postdoctoral research fellow at Witts University in Johannesburg, Cobus's old stomping grounds, and he teaches classes on South African foreign policy and international politics. And last year, to mark the 20th anniversary of the of the the normalization of ties between China and South Africa, he wrote a series of essays, and he's been teaching a number of classes on this. Uh, so, Christopher, thank you so much for joining us. A very good afternoon to you from Johannesburg. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Well, so you heard my long-winded kind of setup of where we are today. Tell me a little bit. Let's kind of look back on the past 20 years and get your take on the kind of where China-South Africa relations are and how did they get started and why is was this such a, an important moment in South Africa's history? Sure. Uh, as you alluded to in the introduction, um, it is an incredibly important relationship for South Africa today. And the partnership between Beijing and Pretoria is very close. Um, but it was not always the case. In fact, uh, when the Mandela administration came into power, it uh, inherited the kind of problem that you alluded to between Taiwan and China. And at that time, the old apartheid government had uh, maintained relations with Taiwan. And so Mandela was faced with a vexing foreign policy problem, which was how to balance uh, relations with Taiwan with uh, trying to forge relations, make new relations with this uh, kind of emerging behemoth, the People's Republic of China. And that uh, problem really vexed his, uh, his administration for the first two and a half years. Can, can you talk a little through the, the kind of the, the options that he considered? Because in, in the paper that you, you pointed out that he was not particularly kind of enthusiastic about, at first anyway, about dumping Taiwan and, and, and you know, kind of switching allegiances to China. What, what did he have in mind? I think that's exactly right. And you have to go back even before Mandela became president to, to better understand this. And there was a couple, couple factors here. Um, as you mentioned, the ANC had never been particularly close to the People's Republic of China. It had uh, favored ties with the Soviet Union during the Sino-Soviet split. And so the ANC had really received some support from China, but it was not nearly as close. Um, and although the Taiwanese, on the other hand, were kind of late to the game uh, supporting the ANC, but when they did come, they supported the ANC with a significant amount of funding in particular. So, for example, Mandela went on a fundraising trip to Taipei in 1993 and uh, came away with a check for $10 million. And this was significant. The ANC was trying to raise funds for the 1994 election, and Mandela thought that uh, leaders in Taiwan had really done him a major favor. And so he was loath to cut ties with what he saw was a new friend in Taiwan, even though the Taiwanese had supported the Nationalist Party uh, for many years uh, previously. Just to finish that point, like you, you, what one of the things that really surprised me in the article was was that you pointed out that that not only had Taiwan, you know, supported the nationalists and then the ANC, but that the the PRC, the People's Republic of China, had actually traded with the apartheid government. I, I had not been aware. Of yeah, that. and this was new research done by a gentleman uh, Henny van Vuren, who wrote a kind of an important book called Apartheid, Guns and Money that came out, I think, 2017. And what he found, and what the ANC had actually issued public uh, press releases to the effect of, so they were aware of this even before von Vieren's research, which was that China had carried on a covert trading relationship with the apartheid government, um, in particular regarding arms, and some even suggest um, uh, nuclear material or nuclear technology. And so the relationship between the PRC and ANC was not terribly close leading up to this 1994 transition. 
That being said, I think many in the ANC felt, well, the PRC is just so big, both economically and so important politically, we have to maintain or we have to establish ties with the PRC. But Mandela thought differently. Mandela thought uh, perhaps he could retain ties with Taiwan and at the same time establish those with the People's Republic of China. And that was the major challenge of his government for the first two and a half years. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Witt's China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So you alluded to the financial relationship between Taiwan and the ANC, and particularly Mandela, how Taiwan was well known for writing big checks. And this was, I guess, the early days of what's been called dollar diplomacy, where the, where Taiwan around the world would use its strong economy. Its rat was one of the Asian tigers back in the 90s, and it was rapidly growing, and it really couldn't compete uh, against China on diplomatic terms because China had a permanent member at the United Nations Security Council. China was obviously a nuclear-powered state, but it did have a lot of money, and particularly in the 90s when China was still relatively poor at that time, it used that money as a diplomatic weapon. And in Africa, it got half a dozen, I don't remember exactly the number of states, but a good number of states still recognized Taiwan, and everybody believes that there was a lot of money going from Taipei to these African capitals. Again, back to 2018, last year, and we really saw the end of Taiwan's diplomatic presence in Africa. Uh, Burkina Faso was the latest state to switch allegiances from Taipei to Beijing. Now there's only Eswatini, which is the, the kingdom of Swaziland, is the lone holdout on the African continent uh, who still recognizes Taiwan. But it is very interesting to think about that money relationship. So as we made the transition, Chris, from Taiwan to China when Taiwan could no longer keep up with the Chinese when it comes to that dollar diplomacy. Uh, did money play into the decision for Mandela also to, to switch allegiances, or was it on more geostrategic, geopolitical terms that he was thinking about? Uh, I think all of the above. Uh, as you guys both mentioned, finance was a major factor. At the time of the transition in South Africa in 1994, Taiwan was South Africa's seventh biggest trading partner. That's a major, a major factor. Uh, Taiwan had also invested a significant amount of money in the homelands in South Africa, and so they had set up factories. Uh, the apartheid government had, been, had given Taiwan tax benefits in order to do this, and the, the hope was to create some sort of economic livelihood within the Bantu stands in which there was widespread unemployment. So there was long-standing economic relationships uh, between South Africa and Taiwan. And furthermore, I think if you talk to some of the diplomats in Pretoria during that period, they felt like Taiwan continued to dangle what they called an economic carrot. And so the idea was that they would, if South Africa continued recognition of Taipei, then they would continue to pump more and more investment into South Africa. And there was talk of major uh, industrial development facilities taking place, for example, in Port Elizabeth. Um, and so this was very interesting to Mandela. He had gone to Taiwan in 1993. He had seen these vocational and technical facilities that Taiwan had uh, created. And he had asked, actually, that the Taiwanese build one in Pretoria, which they were only too happy to oblige. And so there, these sort of relationships were ongoing, and the economic incentive 
to maintain the relationship, at least in Mandela's eyes, was significant. By 1998, when Mandela made the decision, or, you know, he made the decision slightly earlier, um, under how much pressure was he from from the People's Republic of China? And how was that pressure manifested? Yeah, I think this is an important question, Kubis, and one that's not uh, fully appreciated. China, for a while, was happy to let Mandela, the new government, kind of settle in and then get its, uh, get its feet wet in the international stage. Uh, but it, China became increasingly frustrated that South Africa was not making the switch uh, from Taipei to Beijing, as both Mandela and Mbeki had suggested when they, invis- when they had visited the PRC before 1994. And so... China started to subtly but very surely um, put pressure on South Africa to make this switch. And this pressure came in a couple different forms, but the most important had to do with Hong Kong. Uh, now, if you guys will remember, Hong Kong was still a British protectorate, I guess, but it was going to transition back to Chinese authority in July 1997. And Hong Kong was a major trading partner of South Africa. And so the Chinese suggested, in no uncertain terms, that if South Africa did not establish formal relations with the PRC by 1997, then its trading privileges in Hong Kong would be severely curtailed. And that was a damaging thing to South Africa. SAA Airlines went through Hong Kong. Uh, The trading relationship was large. And so that really made the Mandela uh, administration think twice about kind of spitting out its two-China policy. So interesting. And... In so many ways, China and South Africa, again, it, it, it highlights the complexity of the broader China-Africa relationship. And I want to get into some what is potentially some very sensitive territory here, because I've seen the, the, the non-interference doctrine, which is a long-held, well-established foreign policy belief in China, that, you, that China does not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. Uh, Zhou Enlai, back in the 1960s at the Banyong Conference in Indonesia, really you know, promoted this as a benchmark and as a staple of, Amer- of uh, Chinese foreign policy. And yet, South Africa presents some interesting kind of dots on the chart that I'd like to get your, your take on. So even the fact that China was supporting the Pan-African Congress and not the ANC during the, the period of apartheid uh, feels to me like China was had a, a, at least a stake in domestic South African politics. So that was interesting. I don't know the extent that they were involved in that. Uh, several years ago, the Dalai Lama, the very, very controversial Tibetan uh, spiritual leader, uh, had made a number of attempts to see his old friend Desmond Tutu uh, in South Africa. And now the South Africans will say uh, he was not barred from entering the country. He was just never granted a visa. Time and time and time again, he was just never, ever granted a visa. A lot of people feel that came under Chinese pressure. Now, more recently, uh, back in 2018 last year, there was a report of uh, that the Chinese were cooperating with Johannesburg uh, local police to set up these police centers. There are 17 police centers. Barry Van Wick from the Africa-China Reporting Project did some, some great reporting on this, and Matt Schrader in Washington also did some really interesting reporting on this. And it it turns out that some of the associations that are behind these police centers have ties to the Communist Party in China. So those are just a couple different examples of where it looks like the non-interference doctrine, if not violated, certainly comes under pressure in South Africa. And I'd be interested to get your take on the 
the very close relationship that these two countries have where China does seem to step into South African space and sphere of influence. Yes, uh, I think they do on occasion, and the Dalai Lama is a good example of that. Um, Mandela, for example, met with the Dalai Lama in 1996 before he had made the switch, very much angry in Beijing. Can you imagine two celebrities, icons, Mandela and the Dalai Lama, meeting together, uh, and Mandela still recognizing Taiwan? It was, it was really an irritant uh, to Beijing. Uh, in terms of conditions that China puts on its relationships, I think, yes, I think they, there's a suggestion that they don't like to do that. And in fact, they do, um, whether it comes to recognizing the Dalai Lama and the issue of Tibet, whether it comes to Taiwan. These are kind of non-negotiable preconditions into entering um, into diplomatic relations with China. You know, we're in a position now where we again see a kind of a, you know, the, the first glimmers of a, of a discourse where China, where countries will have to choose between China and a different, you know, a different power. In this case, you know, some discussion about the possibility in the tech sphere, for example, of countries having to choose between China and the U.S. for internet hardware, for example, you know, around the the, the U.S. government's case against the Chinese company Huawei. Um, where do you see... And at the same time, in South Africa, we've seen, you know, a, a major political transition with the end of the Jacob Zuma era, who, who was who tended to be quite aligned with with both China and Russia, um, you know, and and a kind of a stepping into the Cyril Ramaphosa era. Um, you know, do do you a do you foresee a kind of a, a era coming up where where choice between China and a different different country again will start making sense? The, in a way that we haven't seen over the last two decades. And where do you see South Africa-China relationship, go, the, the relationship going in, this, in the Ramaphosa era? Yeah, I, I think uh, previously, you know, we were discussing how the Zuma administration moved very closely to China, and I think that's correct. Um, but before him, President Mbeki, even though he had kind of been very involved in the establishment of FOCAC and things like that and brought China and uh, Africa closer together. I think there was real concern in the Becky administration that they might uh, replace one kind of colonial relationship in Africa with another. And so if you talk to some of the officials from the Mbeki administration, they're excited about the China relationship, but also wary that it it could be a bit of a double-edged sword. And so they want to make sure that they get uh, as much as Africa can out of that relationship or make that relationship work for Africa. Uh, and you've even seen, for example, Minister Rob Davies of DTI say that although trade between China and South Africa is fantastic in terms of the uh, size of it, the composition of that trade is somewhat concerning. In general, raw materials go from South Africa to China and finished products or finished goods come to South Africa. Now, that's a relationship that if South Africa wants to grow its industrial base, will not work for South Africa. And so I think there is, I think, um, excitement about the South Africa-China relationship, but it's tempered, uh, at least in many quarters uh, in the Ramaphosa administration, with an appreciation that um, it's got to be closely monitored and modulated in order to make it work for South Africa. And I think part of that is hedging in some way. I think uh, a good uh, and clear South African diplomacy will be one that um, takes advantage of multiple relationships with major powers, whether it be China or the United States or the European Union. Kobus, whenever we have a discussion about China-South Africa relations, it's it, I always have to remind myself that it was only in 1998 that the diplomatic allegiances switched. 
you, it, it's still really, really new. 20 years is not a long time in, in, in the space of, of these types of diplomatic relations. And so to think that 20 years ago, Taiwan was still the diplomatic representation at the expense of China in a place like Pretoria. In, and then there was a South African embassy in Taipei, which is inconceivable today. Uh, it's remarkable to think that it wasn't that long ago. And it really, I think you've mentioned this before, it highlights just how effective and how successful Chinese foreign policy and diplomatic strategy in Africa and around the world, but particularly in Africa, has been over the past 20 years. Yes, I mean, it's it's so fascinating to read Chris's writing and, and to see all these people going, well, we're not so sure about China. Let's see how this pans out. You know, and, and in retrospect, it's like, wow, yeah, it really panned out in one particular direction. Um, and, you know, so China is essentially one. You know, there's only this one micro country still ha in on the African continent still has, has uh, diplomatic relationships with Taiwan. And the rest of the entire continent are now China allies, you know, so so it, it, it really is almost startling to see how a process that, you know, that that, was, that took a major kind of step forward in, uh, you know, with, with during the Mandela era has now essentially been concluded. Yeah. And don't, even though Chris mentioned that there might be a rebalancing that's going on in terms of the weight that, that Pretoria puts towards its relationship with China, uh, I think the markets are going to have a, a, a real important voice in all of this. So politically, maybe Ramaphosa's government wants to realign itself a little bit more towards Europe or towards the United States and away from, from China. I don't believe that, in part because the United States has really bought itself no favors in South Africa. Remember that Trump's steel tariffs really, really hurt South Africa and the South African steel industry. But more importantly, when we look at the economic relationship between South Africa and China, that is only going to continue to grow. And and, and again, you, you see the performance of the JSE, the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, in every economic indicator. And at the end of the day, Ramaphosa, I don't think, can pull away from those economic realities. The other thing to think about, and I, I kind of brought it up in a joking way, but NASPERS is really important. So if Tencent suffers here in China or around the world, that's going to affect the share price of NASPERS. And NASPERS is by far the most important uh, player in the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, not even close to anybody else. So the relationship is very much tied. And how how goes the, uh, you know, the South African economy obviously affects the value of the RAND, which then affects imports and exports. And it just kind of goes down the line. One very important final note uh, I want to refer people back to the discussion that we had with Jeremy Stevens, who is the chief China economist at uh, Standard Bank in Beijing, a South African himself. And he talks a lot about, in his newsletter, the relationship between uh, South Africa and China on the economic basis. So politics, economics, and party may all be separate, but at the end of the day, I think economics wins. Final thoughts from Jacobus before we go. You know, two things. In the first place, um, Ramaphosa is, I think, very interested in in broadening South Africa's economic relationships. So, so I don't think that he's necessarily interested in moving away from China. He just, at the same time, wants to maximize trade with trade and investment from everyone. Um, so, I think that 
Yeah, you know, so 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 it's frequently, you know, I think it's a, the 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 characterization of it as moving towards China and therefore away from the West. I think he's in a way he's almost like Mandela in the sense that he's like, no, let's have both. You know, um, what on the in the second place, I think one thing to also keep in mind is that South Africa is a complicated handful of a country, um, and you know, I think. In a lot of ways, from and this I this I, I judge on on speaking with with Chinese officials, is that in a lot of ways they would have liked I think to have an even closer relationship between South Africa um, and China, um, and also to 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 for South Africa to make investment Chinese investment easier. Um, but South Africa has a lot of quite complex labor law and a lot of complex um, uh, affirmative action law, um, which a lot of Chinese investors find confusing and annoying and difficult to deal with um, and overly complex. Um, and so yet that's what South Africa is doing. So, you know, so in a lot of ways, South Africa is its own complicated kind of, you know, person, complicated country to deal with. Um, and I think in, in lots of ways, sometimes South Africa actually confounds China. Yeah, we and we didn't get into the energy and power relationship between the two, uh, ESCOM, these big loans and nuclear power relationships that are going. We also didn't talk about the rise of Chinese tourism in South Africa and also the growth of the Chinese auto sector in South Africa, in Port Elizabeth in particular. So there is so much room for us to cover in future episodes to dive back into China-South Africa relations. It's part of what we want to do going forward, which is to do more of the bilateral relationships rather than look at China and Africa as the continent, but actually go one by one through a lot of the different key strategic partners that China has in Africa and, and look at them. We would love to find a Nigerian expert uh, who can talk to us about this because obviously Nigeria being the largest country on the continent, now the largest economy on the continent, uh, and, and becoming increasingly important for China's political, military, and economic strategy in Africa. So if you have any recommendations on a great Nigerian expert, we are all ears and we would love to bring somebody in. Uh, so, but what do you think? Or what did you think of what Chris had to say in terms of how we got to where we are today in China-South Africa relations? We would love to hear from you. As always, you can send us a direct email, cobus at chinaafricaproject.com or eric at chinaafricaproject.com. We answer every single email. So far, we can still do it. <laughs> I don't get to all the social media posts that I get, but I do get to all the emails. So if you do want to touch base with us, hit me up on LinkedIn, email, Twitter, all of them are great. We'll have the addresses for you at the end of the show. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.